Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. My guest today is Vitaly Katzenelson. He's an investor, writer, and author of the new book, Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life. Nassim Nicholas Taleb, the author of The Black Swan, calls the book deep, insightful, inquisitive, and civilized, which is a pretty good description of Vitaly himself. Today, he and I discuss what it was like growing up in Russia, north of the Arctic Circle, how America did and did not fit with his expectations, which were set by all the American movies he had seen before he arrived at age 18, whether rich people are actually happier, what we can learn about careers in comparison from Franz Schubert and Beethoven, what it means to be a student of life, and what may or may not happen in Ukraine. Now, we did record this in June of 2022. This is coming out in July, so I can't say what has or hasn't happened in the meantime, just so you know. Before we jump into it, I want to say thank you to my good friend Rob Joseph for introducing me to Vitaly's work. As always, his recommendation is spot on, and uh, I hope you will also follow up and become a subscriber and fan of Vitaly. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Vitaly Katzenelson. Vitaly Katzenelson, welcome to Crazy Money. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Vitaly, you manage a lot of money uh, for yourself and for, for your investors, but you also write a lot about life, the markets, stoicism, music. How and why did you get started writing? Okay. So it's a, there's two different stories, how I got started writing about investing, and then different story, how I got started writing about life other stuff. So I started writing in 2004. I, the street.com was looking for somebody who was in the industry and they were looking for to people to comment on stocks in the market. And uh, so they gave me a chance. And uh, so I started writing for the first time and I really, really enjoyed it. So that kind of became part of how I started to think about you know, stocks or the markets. I would just sit down and write. And that became almost like a second nature to me. This is how, you know, writing, you kind of, I started to think through writing. Over time, I started to kind of, if you, if you write about stocks and economy long enough, things start to repeat because like uh, the market is blow, is going down today. I would argue it's very similar. To <laughs> no, no. Yeah, it's just, just the same way it's, you know, it went down in 2001. So at some, at some point, it gets a little bit monotonous. So I started to write about life. And um, in the beginning, those were very sheepish efforts because who am I to write about life? Like, you know, when I write about investing, I got a CFA, I got a master's degree in finance, I manage money. That, is, that was kind of part of my identity. So it was, I had plenty of confidence to write about this because I knew what I was talking about. Writing about life, it's such an ambiguous topic, right? About parenting, kids, stoic philosophy, classical music. It took me a while before kind of build up the confidence to realize all I can do is just be myself. And all I can do is just tell people what I think about topic, you know, different topics. And if they're interested, they'll, they'll read it. If they're not, they won't. That's all I can control. So that's how I started. Why is it important for an investor to understand his or her life goals? Well, I think it's important for a human being. I mean, I, I, behind every investor, there's a human being. <laughs> Forget that sometimes. Hopefully, you know, hopefully unless you trade with a computer, against the computer, then no. But I think um, if you look at our identities, we have more than one identity. I'm a lot more than just a person who invests. I'm also a person who loves to read. I'm also a father, a husband, a son, and I'm also a person who has my own goals, you know, for life. So I I was given a gift of writing. And I can apply this gift just to investing or to other topics as well. And by the way, the best way to learn about something is to write. So as I mentioned, as I've been learning about, you know, investing through writing, same thing about life. You know, it's just I learned a lot about life through writing as well. Every time you start an essay, do you, do you have an idea as to where you want to take it? And does sometimes in the middle of writing that essay, you find yourself going in a different direction? That is a, such a great question. I often find myself that, Whenever, like the reason I love, let me tell you why I, write, I love writing, and that's going to answer this question. Writing is a very creative process where when I sit down to write, there is a lot, always a lot of trepidation because I have no idea how it's going to look like when I'm done. No idea. And this discovering what I think, I really enjoy that. I don't enjoy it all the time because a lot of times it's very painful. But that's what keeps bringing me to writing because a lot of times when I finish writing it, I look at this and say, oh my God, 
this is interesting. I didn't know I think that. So that, that's why writing is so dear to me, because that's how I learned and discover. You have a unique background as an American. You came to this country when you were 18 years old. Mm -hmm. What was your childhood like? So I grew up in, um, in Murmansk, Russia. If you look at the map of Russia and you look up, very up, look to the left, <laughs> to the left, and you see Norway and Finland. Look at the very tip of Norway and Finland, and this is where Murmansk is. So it's above the Arctic Circle. Where so it's cold. It's, it's very cold and uh, very little sunlight in the wintertime and white, beautiful nights in the summertime. So there is a, um, you get, <laughs> you get the best, you know, it's phenomenal in the summertime. It could get very depressing in the wintertime. I would argue that in the wintertime, Murmansk makes uh, Seattle looks like a sunshine town. So, no, so I, so I grew up. Like in the, my late 70s, you know, throughout 80s, that's kind of my childhood in, in Murmansk, in the Soviet Russia. So a lot of my life was shaped by the kind of the, by, by this, uh, by Russia kind of turning from communist country into kind of a more open society. At times it was a tough, tough life, but I would not trade it for anything. It's one, it's one of those things. Um, so I, I'm, I'm in Denver right, right now, which is probably the opposite of Murmansk, right? There's a lot of beautiful sunshine. And if my kids went to Murmansk or had to, you know, was, you know, what kind of moved to Murmansk, they would have been depressed. You know, the contrast between their life today and life in Murmansk would be, you know, would have been, you know, stark. Where I did not know any better that we had, when, when I went shopping to the store, we had two sugars. One was 90 cent cents, another one was a ruble of, you know, ruble and four kopecks, you know, so that's over four cents. And it was like this throughout my life in Murmansk, where we had bare shelves of very, very little food. But again, I never went hungry. So I was always fed. I didn't care that I only had one pair of jeans, you know, most, you know, and I only wanted two sweaters. None of those things mattered, you know, because I was just, you know, my, my parents loved me. I had a lot of friends. And that's, at the end of the day, that's kind of all that matters. It's kind of, you, you know, the relationships. I wasn't hungry, so I didn't have to worry about hunger. But I just, you know, I had a phenomenal family, good relationships. And at the end of the day, if you think about, about life in general, that's what all that matters. Why did you come to the United States and what did you think when you got here? <laughs> it's kind of interesting. So what you have to understand, in the early, late 80s, early 90s, Russia was suddenly inundated with a lot of American movies. In fact, in the basements of apartment buildings, you would have this little movie theaters pop up. Imagine like you have a basement and you have five TVs connected to one VCR and they would play American movies where every part of the movie is dubbed by the same actor, right? If you think about Hollywood for, you know, probably 80% of the movies they make happen on the coast, either New York or California or West Coast. Okay, so when I thought of United States, I thought of basically a lot of skyscrapers everywhere. And then when right. we moved to Denver, I discovered that it's a very flat and very few skyscrapers. So at first, that was a culture shock. What were the movies you saw before you left Russia? So the, uh, the well, so the, Did you see Footloose or Risky Business? Uh, no, I think I saw Risky Business in the United States, but I'll give you a few. So Moscow and the Hudson was like the classic <laughs> one. Right, right. But, yeah. you know, but there was a lot of movies, Schwarzenegger and Stallone, like the uh, uh, Tango and Cash, the Rambos, and the, uh, you know, all, the, all the good ones, you know, from the, from the yeah. mid-80s. The last movie I saw in Russia was with Steve Martin and uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Scoundrels. Oh, yeah. Uh, Michael, Michael, Michael Caine. Michael, Michael, Michael Caine, yes. It's kind of interesting. You don't think about this, but movies are an incredible when I was growing up in Russia, I was brainwashed, which I learned to hate United States because what I learned about the United States was that black people are oppressed. There's a, a, lot, a lot of poverty. All people think is about money. People are poisoned by hamburg you know, with hamburgers. And that part was true. <laughs> <laughs> and, and soda. And, and, and soda. soda. Yeah, no, this mostly spent time on hamburgers, though. Yeah. And then when we, come to, when we came to the United States, we were invited by my aunt who left Russia in 1979. And she was one of those people who like moved, like moved to Brooklyn. One of those early Russian immigrants to, who, uh, who moved to Brooklyn. And then she moved to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and married a rabbi. And he had a synagogue in Cheyenne, which is 
shocking me that there are any Jewish people in Cheyenne, but there might be. The rabbi of Cheyenne. The rabbi of Cheyenne. And what was amazing, when we arrived to Denver, imagine we brought all our belongings because we left Russia for good. And so all like we had for each one of us, we had two or three, these enormous duffel bags. And we get picked up at the airport by these strangers, people who just, you know, volunteered to help my aunt to bring her family, you know, to the United States. And these strangers basically rented us an apartment, furnished it, even gave us some clothes. And the, the reason I'm bringing this up, because all the stereotypes uh, I, uh, you know, I was taught in Russia how Americans only think about money and that's all they think about it. Suddenly it was broken right there because these people were willing to help people they did not know. They just volunteered their time and money to help these immigrants from Jewish immigrants from Russia. So it's a kind of the country that was painted to me by Russian propaganda ended up being a very different country. And by the way, also that image also been just like when you watch Moscow on the Hudson or you watch a lot of American movies, you can see that, you know, that the country that was, you know, that I was brainwashed about is a very different country than in real life. That's so the Hollywood actually had a huge impact on the shaping Russian psyche, late 80s, early 90s. How did you find yourself and how did you find a, a path? You were a young man when you got here at 18 years old, but now you're in an unfamiliar country. Your family has very little money. Did you feel, did it take you a while to figure out how to fit in and find your place? That's a great question. So I was 18 years old. I ended up going to high school, not to learn, but really to study English. Because I, by this point in time, I already spent a few years in Marine College in Russia. So I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't really need to go to high school. But I went to high, to high school to study English. And I was, first, I was shocked that everybody smiles in the United States all the time. In fact... Uh, when I went to Russia only once, you know, since I moved here in 2008, which is what, 20 something years after I lived in the United States. And I was smiling at people in Russia that looked like I was, there was something wrong with me. <laughs> so you know, That's like New York City. It's kind oh, of. Maybe, yes. <laughs> On the rainy day. I find that in general life, it just a lot of things happen to us by accidents, right? I, how, did, how did I discover that I wanted to do investing? Well, I tried six or seven different majors in, in college didn't like any of them, and then got a job by accident with an investment firm where they hired me because I had good computer skills. And uh, then at the same time, I took a finance class, you know, kind of, you know, having a job and, you know, kind of working for an investment firm and took an, uh, taking a finance class, I realized I really like investing. And at that point, my life became so much simpler because I realized I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I, need, I, need, I knew that I need to get a degree, uh, undergraduate degree in finance graduate degree in finance and to get a CFA. And so I was lucky because I kind of figured out what my love is, like investing-wise, I mean, career-wise, in my early 20s. So that gave me this laser focus that I could just focus on my career. That's, you know, that's basically how I got into investing. How did you convince your first investor to, to trust you with their money? Well, I didn't need to because when I, so what, so what, what happened was I joined this firm as an analyst and over time, so then this firm already had clients. And over IMA. IMA, yeah, I firm, I joined IMA, and, you know, IMA had clients. The guy who hired me, Michael Kahn, he basically told me everything I knew. And so the, the clients did not need to trust me, they need to trust Mike. And over time, the uh, IMA's clients learned to trust me. And, and it, you know, in all fairness, I worked, I've been here for 20 Three, uh, 25 years. So, I, so uh, since 1987, yeah, so, so for almost 25 years. So over time, clients, I kind of earned my clients' trust. But I was lucky that I, if I start, if I, I couldn't, there's no way I could have started this firm in 1997. First of all, I, I didn't have enough knowledge to start the firm. Second of all, there is no way I could find enough clients to trust me. You, you know, the markets, we're recording this on June 14th of 2022, the markets have been destroyed over the last, uh, if you're long anyway, if you're long the markets, you've gotten crushed. <clears throat> Pardon me. Is it more stressful to manage your own money or to manage somebody else's money? So it's, a, it's, it's a great question. I always manage somebody else's money and my money has been managed like everybody else's money. So I, I, I'm not even sure how to answer this question, but I, the way we manage money, be incredibly process-based. And therefore, when like, you know, like yesterday the market was down four or five percent, like you would not know this if you walk into our office, because just like I was reading, uh, you know, any report of company B, 
or listen to earnings call, I would be, you know, I was doing the same thing yesterday. You know, the, this market volatility really has very little impact on us because if I was trading every day, that it would have impact on me. But that's not what we do. We are basically, all we do here is try to put a portfolio of companies to, you know, that we, high quality companies that we want to own for a long period of time. And we want to buy them when they're undervalued. What markets thinks about our companies at any given point in time, it doesn't matter to me. As long as nothing fundamentally changed about the companies we own, I don't care what they, or, you know, where they're priced on any given point in time. Let me take, let me take another angle yeah. on this one from a longer term point of view. Is it, do you take your performance annually? Do, do you, is it hard not to take it personally if you don't do as good a job as you want to do or if you don't beat the market? There's, there's so many ways to answer these questions. Okay, number one. No, like the people like me who are very competitive, we usually, we make a mistake of tying our identity to, to our performance. And I think that is extremely dangerous because you have, very, even if you make all the right decisions, you have zero control how the market will price your stocks at any given point in time. And the disconnect what the company is worth and where the market prices that could exist for years and years. You know, so I had to teach myself not to tie my identity only to how my portfolio is doing. What Stoic, philosoph Stoic philosophers, uh, uh, Epictetus, has this con concept called the academy of control. And it really talks about, and it's very simple. It basically says there are certain things that are up to us, many things aren't. Things that are up to us is basically, it's our character, it's what we say, it's what we do. Everything else is not up to us. So what is up to me is doing thorough, good research, uh, making sure I follow our you know, investment principles, you know, et cetera. What is not up to me, how the market decides to price our stocks at any point in time. Therefore, they will be, if, you're, if you're a disciplined investor, there will be years where your performance will be completely disconnected from, from what the market is doing. If you were a value investor over the last five or seven years, it was a treacherous place to be an investor because you were competing against stocks where the richer, you, the richer your imagination was, the more money you made. Like, if, like I'll give an example, like Kathy Woods, who runs ARK Innovation Fund. Her fund was up three or four times like in the, from, from, from the lows, lows of the pandemic through February 2021, I think. Uh, her fund tripled or quadrupled. We haven't. And then, and then, you know, but these things usually don't last forever. And then, you know, now she's, you know, anybody who bought her fund over the time period is down on the purchase. So same thing, you know, if you were a disciplined investor, you know, you would have lost a lot of clients, not money, clients during the dot-com era because clients would be dropping. If you had your own clients, they would be dropping you and buying dot-com stocks, which eventually blew up. So... Yes, I was there. No, yeah, you know, so it's, you know, so the, as a, you know, so as a value investor, you know, these miners don't last forever, but while you are going through them, it's a threat, you know, it's, it could be treacherous uh, from the perspective of the fact that you have to deal with clients and you have a business and you're not doing as well as crazy money is doing. <laughs> but then, you know, but then like, you know, 20, uh, 2022 happens. And, uh, you know, for a while, you know, when the market was down 20%, you know, our portfolios were up. But that's a, you know, that was a, as, as good as it sounds, that to get there, I had to suffer for three or four years of underperformance at times. You've written a few books uh, about, uh, the first two are about investing. Uh, the most recent one is called Soul in the Game. It's out June 21st. Why did you take this angle on writing for this book, because it's a departure from what you what you've written about in your previous book. So let me tell you how this book came about. So I, over time, as I start to write more articles about life, I have a large subscriber base, people who just subscribe to receive my articles by email, and when they re receive my articles in the email, kind of the weirdest email you ever get, because at the top it's going to have my father's art, then it's going to have an article about life or personal story, then it's going to have an article about investing, then at the bottom it's going to have my brother's art. And then there will be a section about classical music. The weirdest, you know, the, <laughs> the weirdest email you ever get. And what I started to hear from readers that they came to me originally for my investment insights, but they really stayed 
and kept reading my articles for my life stories, which was an interesting discovery for me because, you know, I, I, I almost looked at my, me writing about life kind of a little bit self-indulgent, you know. And a lot of people would always you know, tell me that, Vital, you should take your life articles and turn them into a book. And I always resisted that. And then something happened in August 2020. I was, I was writing this essay. Uh, I was going to write a music section about Tchaikovsky's sextet, you know, uh, sextet for, for, for string instruments, for, for strings. And I was, I was kind of writing about this and researching it. I learned that Tchaikovsky suffered tremendously while he was composing this piece. And as I was reading Tchaikovsky's letters to his brother about Modeste, about his suffering and struggles, I realized these struggles are not any different than the struggles I go through when I write. I mean, Tchaikovsky was composing music, I'm writing. He's a brilliant composer. I'm the guy, you know, who's, you know, struggling to write. But, you know, we, we both struggled. And I realized, and so I ended up writing this piece. And after I was finished with this, I had this aha moment where I realized, if somebody who is starting to write would actually benefit from this. And then I realized I wrote so many articles like this that could help people, not just about writing, about parenting, about other things. And I thought, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all my life articles, put them into a Word document, and then I will you know, go you know, edit them and put, put them into a book and I'll self-publish it. And literally maybe a week later, I got an email from Harriman House, which is a British publisher, and I met them maybe, maybe a couple of years before this. And at the time, I was working on another investment book. And uh, they emailed me and said, Vitaly, how's that investment book going? I said, well, that book is kind of, I put it on ice, and I'm now working on this project. And I sent them basically what I had. And I, honest to God, I expected a very polite you know, kind of email from them because they're British after all, you know, usually polite or you know, very polite. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the email would say something, Vitaly, congratulations on this new book you're working on. But, <laughs> but that's not what we yeah, want. Good luck, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> yes. They actually came back to me and said, oh, this sounds actually very interesting. I said, oh, great. So let's, you know, so we so ended up you know, going with them and we kind of came up with, you know, and that's how this book came about. You weave in stoicism, art, music. What can, what, what can we learn or what can an investor or just a, an ambitious human being learn of, from the work of Franz Schubert or Schubert? No, no, Schubert, no, Schubert, no, Schubert. He was French. He, uh, he was Austrian, so he said Schubert. Schubert. Uh, if he was French, he would be Schubert. We want to, we want to be sophisticated yeah, no, no, here no, no, on the that podcast. Let's call him French Schubert. I like it. I, the, German, the, the Georgian way to pronounce Schubert. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. This is a person who was addicted to writing music. Over his lifetime, he wrote five or 6,000 pieces of music. And when I say his lifetime, he died in his early 30s. At wow. the time, if you caught syphilis, it was, a de- it was a death sentence. And so he, and that was a very common disease, you know, in the, in the 1800s. Uh, so he caught citizen, you know, syphilis in his mid-20s, and he had six years of miserable life, six or seven years of miserable life. He was very poor. The only love he had was music. So what can we learn from him? Well, here's what we can learn from him. So he lived in the early 1800s, probably, I'm not sure it's an exaggeration or not, but not the very, in a few blocks away from Beethoven. At that time, Beethoven was the most famous composer. And when I say the most famous, it's almost like, I don't think, like it's a Michael Jackson on steroids, okay? Like even like, if you were a composer in Vienna, it was very difficult for you not to be, feel like you live in Beethoven's shadow because every piece that Beethoven composed, people loved it. And in fact, when Beethoven composed his uh, ninth symphony, his last symphony, some people said that this is the way the music died because this is, you can't write a better symphony than Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which is, I'm so glad, first of all, that other composers that lived after Beethoven, like Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff, and others did not get the message because we would have been, you know, missed out on a lot of music. But Schubert, interestingly, published almost very little music during his lifetime because he lived in Beethoven's shadow. And because he felt that his music is not good enough. The irony is today, which is basically 200 years later, we listen to Beethoven's music and Schubert's music, and we don't say Beethoven is better than Schubert or vice versa. We, we treat them as equals because they're both 
they both were brilliant. And I think the, what we can learn from this as we always, whatever industry we're in, there's always going to be somebody who is going to be this kind of debate hoven of that industry. And we want to, we don't want to, uh, the shadow of that person kind of be over us and stop us from going forward. We, what we need to do is to create, is to create our own shadow. So, you know, Schubert did this. He just did not know about this during his lifetime. He, 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 he died destitute, did not knowing that 200 years later, we'll still be talking about him. Just think about this. This is a person who thought he's nobody. And 200 years later, we still listen to his music. I would argue that's, that's a success. But also think about how many other musicians during that basically... We know about Schubert because his work survived. But how many musicians never, who might have been as, as talented as Schubert or Beethoven, whose uh, symphonies never saw the uh, light of day because they never thought they were good enough? So Tchaikovsky had vicious self-doubt. Schubert didn't feel significant relative to Beethoven. How do you use that in your day-to-day to... To continue to be to be aware of the work you have the possibility to yeah, do. So that that is a, such a great question. Because and here's why it's a great question. Because you look at these composers, you look, you listen to music of these composers, and you think that they were so gifted that it was so easy for them to write this. And when you look at their you know, personal stories, you realize all of them struggled to do this. All of them had to overcome a lot of self doubt to create this music. And they, they felt like frauds. They they had they had FOMO. They had um, imposter syndrome. All those things we talk exactly. about. Exactly. Once you realize that even those geniuses suffered through this, you realize that this is just part of the journey for everybody. And uh, and actually, that is inc- incredibly liberating, right? Because if you realize if they if they suffer through this, when we suffer similar emotions, we realize. That it's it's absolutely normal part of any creative uh, process. I feel it all the time. I wake up some. I, I'm generally I'm very excited to wake up because there's a lot of cool things that I do every day. But I worry that am I doing the right thing? Am I really supposed? To, is this how I'm supposed to be spending my life? Is my work any good? I mean, I think it's a highly normal thing to do, especially for very successful people. Anything that has a anything that has any any creative endeavor, almost by definition. It's creative because you don't have certainty. Like, let me tell you who has certainty. The guy who is working on Fiat's assembly line. He knows that he mm-hmm. clocks in, he's going to do the same thing over and over again. There would be very little variability in his day, throughout the, his day. He's gonna, he knows when he clocks out. There is zero uncertainty in his life. And you would argue, I would argue that's extremely there is zero creativity as well. Anytime you introduce any kind of creativity, that means you're creating something that did not exist before. By doing that, that's actually, you have to, almost like when I think about anything creative, think about you're traveling through the fog and you're, uh, you're driving through the fog and you have your um, uh, headlights. In your headlights, you can only see what's a, f- you know, a few feet ahead of you. That's what, you know, what, that's what create anything, anything created. That's what it feels like. Once you travel through the fog and one, you know, and you're on the other side of it, you receive an incredible satisfaction. But while you going through this fog, it's an extremely nerve wracking and it could be, uh, painful at times, but that is, uh, but that's in my mind, to me, this is how I get meaning in life by doing things that are creative, be it writing or be it investing. You know, and, and especially investing when, when you are in the dot-com bubble and you are not in you, your sensible things and you don't own those dot-coms. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, of, of that concept, you introduce a concept in the book called, uh, you say you want to be a student of life. What does that mean to you? I think the worst thing that could happen to human being is when you come to realization that you learn everything there is to know. This is when you stop growing. This is where you become arrogant. If you look at the world that it's a constant, you know, when you wake up every morning, you're there just to learn a new thing, something new, then you're going to approach, you're going to approach life very differently. It's just everything you experience is just an opportunity to learn. I, I play chess a little bit and I lose a lot. Like when I play chess, I lose a lot. But you know what? I actually condition myself to face these losses with a, with a smile because 
that's a part, you know, losing in chess, that's a part of the process of learning chess. I think one of the Stoics said, it's impossible to teach a person who already uh, thinks he already knows. I, I'm going to butcher this, but something say something along the lines. It's very. It's impossible to teach somebody who already know, who already thinks he knows the answer to everything. So, student of life is the opposite. Is that somebody who is always curious and willing to learn? And uh, I think that is kind of that's how you continue to grow. And that, as an investor, that's how you don't become arrogant and you. You know, which is uh, which is very dangerous as an investor or human being in general. I, I noticed your modesty when you your intent to not represent yourself as an expert when you just said I play chess a little bit. <laughs> no, there's no. There's, you don't you don't want to say hey I'm a big chess player. You say I try. I want to learn. I'm a student. Of I, chess. Actually, there was like in this case, I can safely say there is very little. Uh, just because I have a Russian accent and I was born in Russia, I know people <laughs> that gives you some extra points. You know. You're not Gary yeah, Kasparov. Yeah, yeah, but yes, but uh, no, I am a. I got into playing chess again, and I write about this in the book, because my daughter, who is now 16, when she was you know, 15, she basically uh, she watched Queen's Gambit, and she said, "Dad, let's play chess." And then my life in chess never been the same since. That's so cool. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but I, there was like when I there was very little self modesty about when I talk about chess. <laughs> there are other things, you know, I know you practice meditation and you have this concept in the book that I thought was interesting. I've been trying to meditate for three or four years now and I do get a lot out of it, but I feel it's something I want to do perfectly, but there's no way to do meditation perfectly, right? And you have this concept, you said you look for one good or one perfect minute of, of, in one of your meditation sessions. And I thought that was a really interesting concept because I spend 20 minutes meditating and I feel like 19... 0.59 of those minutes is spent thinking about the dry cleaning, the dog, uh, why, why the world isn't recognizing me to the extent I want it to, et cetera. But if I just focus on getting one good minute, that whole session would be worthwhile. That's right. right. Well, I think so. The, there are a couple of things you are like, let me address a couple of things you mentioned here. Number one, I think me, I, I misunderstood meditation for a long time. I, when I thought about meditation, I thought about these posters you see where this skinny, beautiful woman in a in a very athletic <laughs> wear, sitting on the edge of the mountain, looking at this perfect sunset or sunrise, right? And this is, and it's, it probably said serenity at the top or something. But that's, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Um, and that's that's what you think about meditation. In reality, that's not what meditation is. And you don't need to do this in this perfect, you know, you don't need to do this at the uh, on the cliff of the mountain, looking at the perfect sunset. I spent eight hundred dollars on a Lululemon meditation outfit, and it, <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't help me that's meditate. Right. In fact, in fact, some people argue that you can meditate right next to like Jack Hammer, and like, you know, if you're very good at this, you know. So, what it is, like, let me tell what it means. What meditation means to me, meditation is basically me trying to sit and f trying not to think, or just try to focus on something like in my, my, my breath. Okay. While I do this, I'm going to constantly fail at this. And that is the, and that is the feature of this, not a bug. That, you know, because you're, since you were a very little child, you were constantly thinking about different things throughout the day. Um, and you trying not to think is not natural for you. So that process of trying not to think and failing, that is actually, that is the feature of meditation. Now, when you try not to think, the thoughts will come to you. Your job is to try to observe these thoughts and, and to train yourself to become an observer of your thoughts. This is important for a couple of reasons. Because there will be a time when something bothers you. And since it's happening in your head, you don't even notice that because it's just happening kind of in your, in, in your head and you are focused on something else. And if you train your if you train your mind to be observer of your own thoughts, and and you see this thought almost like a ship kind of going in the into the sunset, if you start or if you start if you observe this thought, then it neutralizes it neutralizes negative emotions. Also, and I when I talk I'll spend a lot of time talking about this when I talk about Stoic philosophy. Stoics had a special like almost like a, a set of rules for dealing with anger. And they call it anger temporary insanity. 
And if you think about it, anger is a temporary insanity, right? Because it's almost <laughs> sure, like somebody yeah. else takes over your body. You're not even in control of what you're doing. So if you observe that you're getting angry, that in itself actually helps you to neutralize your anger. Because then, it, then if once you observe anger coming in, all you have to do is just take time off. That's the, that's the, like, there's a lot of other advice I can give you. Meaning if you can view your, uh, your thoughts and your emotion from a third party perspective, yes. it, it gives you some distance from the emotion. In yeah. That it's almost moment. like a balloon. You just pop just by you observing it actually neutralizes that. Yes. And in case of anger, once you observe, you're getting angry, just like what I do, I just go into next, next role. Like, you know, as and I say this as a husband, as a as a as a father, as an employer, or as a person who is at the rental car counter, and instead of getting SUV, gets a you know a minivan or something. You know, as a, you know, as a human who interacts in the daily life and things don't go according to my plan. You know, but it, let's talk about the uh, the other thing you mentioned about. I call this concept that minute, one, that one perfect minute, or maybe 10 perfect seconds, whatever that number is in your meditation. I call this a minimum measurable unit or minimum meaningful unit, whatever MMU, whatever you want to call it. But basically, whatever we do, especially when we try to create a new habit, you, create, you find something that you know you can achieve. When I was riding to ride, when I started riding a bicycle, my first attempt was like, all I had to do, all I tried to do is, well, I tried to ride the bicycle every day. So my goal was just to spend 10 minutes on the bicycle every day. That's it. My, my MMU was 10 minutes on the bicycle. Then after a while, I tried to do is to have a cadence of 60 RPO, you know, 60 revelations per minute for 10 minutes. And then I, you know, again, I could, it's a, it was small, it was measurable. And, and it was process-based. When I started to walk, you know, I wanted to walk every day outside. You know, said, I'm going to walk for 20 minutes a day and I'm going to do it every single day, no matter what the weather is. So again, something that's small, something that's achievable. And when you meditate and you have this, I don't know, 10, 30 seconds, 50 seconds of perfect meditation where you can actually block all the other thoughts and you just focus on breathing. And when you do this, it gives you a sense of accomplishment. By the way, also like, so this concept from a meditation, I also apply to my writing. Like when you, when I write two hours a day from five to seven every single day. And I find that I have very little control over the outcome of each, each writing session. The only thing I can control is that I, I show up at my, with my computer at five o'clock and I don't do, I don't go on Twitter or on LinkedIn or whatever, check my email. Just for two hours, I listen to music and I focus on writing. That's all, that, that's all I can control. What I'm going to write that day, I have zero control over. But here's what I learned. Whenever there is a day where I spent two hours of writing and I wrote absolutely nothing, I forgive myself. I forgive myself because I know that if I do this long enough, then something will come to me. That active process of sitting and thinking, you know, focused thinking, at some point, I'm just planting seeds in my subconscious and at some point, these seeds will give a, you know, will give a fruit. And um, I just don't know when. It may be when I'm walking in the park. This may be when I'm talking, taking a shower. Maybe when I'm working out. And in the in the early early in my writings, I would kind of judge myself, or if I, you know, if I sit down to write, if I finish the article, I didn't. Now all I have to do is just spend two hours of focused writing, nothing else. And the outcome of that, no control over that. And I don't judge not the right word, but I, I, I'm not, I'm not self-critical about this, you know. Right, right. Changing gears just a little bit. In your opinion, are rich people happier? No, we all need a certain amount of money just to cover our basic needs. I, that number is going to be different wherever you live. Actually, in fact, I read that in San Francisco, the cost of living is so high that 117 thousand dollars makes you uh, puts you in the poor category in San Francisco. Okay, yeah, wow. low, low income wow. category. But anyway, so the, but what I found that, no, rich people are not any happier because after you covered some basic needs, you're just able to afford fancier things. But fancier things don't necessarily bring you happiness. One thing I found about money that when you have enough money, and when I say enough money, let's be clear, when your income exceeds your expenses, 
This could be if you make $100 million and you have $90 million of expenses, or if you make $100,000 and you have $90,000 of expenses. But when you feel safe about tomorrow that you're going to have enough money to pay your bills, it brings you a certain amount of freedom. You know, that's about it. Money overall does not, I know a lot of people who have hundreds of millions of dollars, some have billions of dollars, and I didn't observe any more happiness in them than I observed in people who have a lot less money. Just a couple of more questions on, on, on semi-topical things, but things that I'm very interested in your opinion about. Let's say a person has a whole bunch of money, $100 million. How much money should they leave their children? That's a good question. Warren Buffett has a good answer to this question. And if enough money that they can do anything, but not too much so they can do nothing. Like, you know, I have three kids and I think a lot about this right now. I feel like my job is to pay for their education. I'm, I may help them when they buy their first house or something. But my job as a parent, mm-hmm. actually, is to raise them well enough that they become independent. It's a, my, So my job is to train them so they can face life on their own. What does that mean? Like, so what skills are you trying to teach them? I mean, okay, you're going to get them a college degree, but beyond that, what does that mean? How do you teach responsibility? Yeah, so they, they can face adversity, you know, because you know, they, they face adversity and they know how to do with that. So this, so this is why when I write about Stoic philosophy, I was writing as much for myself as I was writing for them as, as for everybody else, because I find this like Stoic philosophy, for instance, it's a great operating system for life. I, I also want them to be good human beings. I want to, and then, you know, and the probably number one quality I want them to have is to be kind to others. Uh, that's very important to me. But how much money, I, I probably, like, I think it's important to help your kids. So they, I think we look at the money a little bit in the wrong way. We usually think about, we're going to leave money to our kids when we die. Okay, so usually, let's say if you are, you know, in your 80s, you leave your money to your kids when they're in the 50s or 60s, well, at that point in time, that money is probably not helping them very much. I would argue when they're in their 20s or maybe early 30s and they start a family, that money could help them a lot more because it could afford them to buy a house. You know, or right. like, like in my case, I'll hopefully I'll help to fund my kids, my grandkids. You know, I don't have grandkids yet, but my grandkids' education at some point in time. So that would lessen the burden on my kids. So that's how I look at it. But I... Um, like if, if you give somebody who is in their early twenties, millions of dollars, you're probably going to ruin their life. Not going to help their life. Yeah. 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 We're in a, we're officially in a bear market. What, what advice, what assurances would you give to people who are scared and, uh, anxious about what's happening in the market and with their portfolio? Well, it's, it's a very, it's a, uh, depends what the, on what they own. If they own Bitcoin, I'll have zero advice to them. And like, like, yeah, <laughs> just, just, like, just like when the, you know, and I, my advice was very consistent, like about Bitcoin or any, any other cryptocurrencies, NFTs or other things that are, may otherwise, you know, that you can't value. You know, it might, you know, I just, well, my advice was consistent. Don't. You are not investing, you're speculating. Well, a couple of things. Um, number one, the bear markets tend to shrink your time horizon. Like when you're in the bull market and everybody is giddy and happy, you are looking 10 or 20 years out. And assuming that's your time horizon, that's what you should be doing. When you go through bear market, you know, it's a, your time horizon shrinks from years to months to days. So well, one point I would make, make sure you still have a long-term time horizon. Make sure you don't artificially shrink your time horizon. If you own the company that you felt that you've done your research and you felt it was undervalued and now it's cheaper, the price declined, you should be celebrating this because either you can buy more of the stock or if this company generates enough cash flows, it can buy its own stock. So like we own a lot of companies that, you know, we have some companies who have declined a bunch and they're buying their own stock. So that actually, in the long term, it's going to create value for me as a shareholder. I think they, and I've, written enough about this that I can say this without sounding like a complete jerk, but preparation for bear markets should not be started in the bear market in general. Like, you know, and I know it sounds like a jerk. You should not be investing, you know, like if you, if you were speculating before the market and now you're down 50%, I'm not sure what advice I have for you. Like, you know, I just, 
you know, it's, it's, I, it's sound heartless, but I just don't know what to tell you. If you, if, no, but, but if you're on, inv- if you, I don't own any Bitcoin no, for no, the no, record, I'm, I don't I'm, own I'm any NFTs. Looking, even though Bitcoin. I'm looking at you when I'm talking to you, I'm not looking at you. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, no, but I, my, my, my point is this, um, over the last five, seven years, we, we created a lot of fair weather investors who are doing incredibly well when interest rates are declining, when the economy is being uh, inflated by all this quantitative easing and, you know, and free money, you know, a lot of money been printed. But we may be entering into a period where the economic growth will be a lot, less, a lot slower. It's basically entering into payback time for all the excesses of the last decade. I think we're entering into payback time for the excesses and economic growth will be a lot less. And uh, companies that actually generate cash flows have good balance sheets and have pricing power are the ones that will be doing the best. And I think this is, it's still not too late to reposition your portfolio to those companies. One mistake people may make is that they feel like they have to make their money back the same way they lost it. So think about this. If you own a lot of dot-coms, and when I say you again, not talking about you, okay? (laughs) um, but you know, if if someone if if someone lost a lot of money during dot coms, and they felt uh, that they have to make money through through those companies, a lot of these companies went out of business. Some of them recovered. You almost have to divorce yourself from your past decisions, and and look at the company you own. You say, well, okay, I made a mistake. I bought this company. I overpaid for this. The stock is down. Is this company? What is, it, what, what is it worth? Where it's going to be five or 10 years from now? And what's, what's important to learn is that usually, like during the, usually what happened historically, the sector that declined, it was not the one who led the recovery. Meaning that if uh, the, the bubble, okay, let me, let me, I'm going to say it differently. The same bubbles rarely reinflate. That's, that's, that's important. Mm-hmm. Because when people lose money on the stock, and the stock, you know, and it declines a lot. When it starts going back up, they starts, you know, the reason it doesn't reinflate because they try to unload this company to get their money back. That's why, see, the same bubbles rarely reinflate. That's why dot uh, com bubble did not reinflate the first one, and it took uh, what fifteen twenty years for this one to come about, and it and it looked different from the previous one. So, yeah, you know, those would I guess those would be my you know kind of pearls of wisdom as a. So good luck, Bitcoin people. <laughs> but Vitaly's going to send you some bandages and um, uh, a nice bottle of scotch to ease your pain, but but no, nothing else. To, well, no, to I, I, in all fairness, I was very vocal. Like 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 for the last many years, I've been very vocal about when you know because a lot of people would ask me what I think about Bitcoin. I said I don't think about Bitcoin, and I explain all the reasons why. You know, if you invest in Bitcoin, you're not really investing; you're speculating, and. If if, yeah, if this is yeah. a fifty basis points of your portfolio, one percent of your portfolio, why not? You know, but if this is you, if this is your portfolio, then you know I feel very sad for you. All right, one last question, and this is unfair to you because it's a it's an hour long conversation, but uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. What are your thoughts on on what's happening in Ukraine and uh, what might happen over the next? Gosh, that's uh, how no, long. I, I agree with the unfairness of this question because I just wrote four articles. It's almost like a mini book on Ukraine. Oh, well, this is a great way to play. Let's, yeah, let's, yeah, yeah, let's yeah. talk about uh, where yeah, our yeah, listeners yeah. So can the, find the, it. I, there, are, there are four articles. They can, uh, your listeners and uh, viewers can find them on contrarianedge.com, contrarianedg.com. But let me give you one new thought about this. When, when the invasion happened, Putin used an excuse that, you know, this war with Ukraine was his response, forced response to NATO's invasion, kind of NATO circling Russia from all directions. Then he had another excuse that, which was false, uh, completely false, that, you know, the Ukraine is full, is full of Nazis. And then, you know, by invading Ukraine, he's liberating Ukraine, you know, from Nazis. A few days ago, he was speaking at a car, he was speaking at a, at an event, and he basically compared himself to Peter the Great, and he's basically he basically said that Peter the Great's job was to expand and fortify Russian borders, and he said, and he basically said, so is my job. He basically admitted that 
his Ukraine, the this Ukraine invasion in Ukraine has absolutely nothing to do with NATO, nothing to do with Nazis in Ukraine, which is complete nonsense, but everything to do with him trying to expand kind of Russia's borders and kind of to institute the Soviet Union. Why this is important? Because we look at, I almost look at Russia today as the Nazi Germany in 1939 when it invaded Poland. If it would have stopped, if we stopped at uh, Nazi Germany then, then millions and millions of lives that were lost after that. You know, the losses of uh, millions of lives, you know, 30 million of lives would have been prevented. But we didn't. And I would argue today is that today, basically, Ukrainians are fighting for our freedom. Our freedom because after he's done, you know, Putin is done with all the ex-Soviet republics that are not part of NATO, he'll go into Baltic republics that are part of NATO. And since we haven't stopped them, he's going to think, well, we're going to do nothing again. And at this point, if we do nothing... And then basically, then he's going to say, well, he's going to well, how about Poland? And, you know, so at some point, we're going to have a World War III on a much greater scale if we do nothing today. So this is kind of, you know, that's kind of my, I didn't mean to sound preachy, but that's kind of that. No, 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 no. And okay, so well, that's a good, a good segue to, to, to close it up. So again, the place where you where you do most of your writing is at contrarianedge.com, yes. Yes. correct? Yep. And so we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And your new book is Sold that- in a Game by our guest Vitaly Katzenelson. Is there anywhere else you'd like to to steer people to yeah, find out more two, two about more you, things. Vitaly? Number one, uh, once you buy the book, if you go to soulinagame.net and you send us a receipt of your purchase, I'll email you four new chapters that I wrote after I wrote the book. So uh, that's point number one. Point number two, I, I have, we have a podcast that's called The Intellectual Investor, where basically my articles on investing topics, life topics, and other topics are read to you by a wonderful audio artist. So you get basically to get your articles to be almost like audio uh, uh, articles on tape. So it's, and you can find them on investor.fm. And again, my, you can find my book on soulinthegame.net. Excellent. Well, Vitaly, I enjoyed the book. I'm glad I got to know you a little bit today. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this interview. Thank you. Hey, everybody. If you like what we're up to here at Crazy Money, do us and yourself a favor by following the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my new Substack, where you'll get bi-weekly thoughts on the role of money in our world and in our lives directly to your email inbox. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next week.